thought today we will continue the theme of deception but in terms of the point where Caiaphas gets Jesus crucified and um, next week we will consider the antidote to this deception and Jesus prayer from the cross where he says father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing and uh, the question i want to ask is what is it that they did not know i don't know whether you have ever really bothered to look at that so jesus said father forgive them for they do not know what they do but what was it that they did not know or what is it that they did not know deception is an act that misleads you would have seen magicians on stage performing and they make you think they are going to do something but then they do something else that's deception giving the impression that you are doing one thing when you are actually doing something else it is the appearance of goodness from a moral point of view it is the appearance of goodness with wrong or evil intent this is from a moral point of view that's what deception is it has the appearance of goodness with a wrong or moral intent it is giving the impression that you are doing something for common good but actually your motive is purely personal gain so we call these things deception if satan is the father of deception caiaphas was the high priest of deception in fact as i read through the bible after the garden of eden the devil tempting adam and eve the next probably the the most clever a uh, deception we see is that of caiaphas so if satan is the father of deception caiaphas was the high priest of deception he was a consummate manipulator a clever man who knew how to control a crisis situation and turn it to his advantage with the help of people and systems so what is the background the background is john's gospel chapter 11 after jesus brought back lazarus from the grave the chief priests and the pharisees were worried at the popularity of jesus and we read the following they are saying to themselves what shall we do for this man works many wonders if we let him go on like this everyone will believe in him and then the consequences of that is pretty terrific or pretty terrible and they say and the romans will come and take away both our place and our nation so there are two things at stake here according to them our place in the hierarchy and our nation i.e. israel Jesus was a genuine and immediate religious and political threat. 
they searched for a way to diminish his influence on the public. His miracles and revolutionary teaching attracted the imagination of the disgruntled crowds. They readily identified him as their Messiah and the one endorsed by God to carry out his will. I have, over the period of writing the book, Meeting God in Gandhi Road, coined a new term or a new phrase, no, new word. It is called scapegoating. See, what we normally call scapegoating is actually scapegoating. Scapegoat, there is nothing wrong with that as we read in the Old Testament. It is a provision from God. But human beings don't like scapegoats. What we have is scapegoats. Now, I'll explain this. Scapegoating and scapegoating. In Jesus' arithmetic, it is always 99 plus 1. You have heard me talk about it when we were looking at the parable of the lost sheep. It is always 99 plus 1, not 100 minus 1. But the scapegoating mechanism teaches us that it is not only right but also necessary to sacrifice one sheep for the sake of 99. That's what scapegoating is all about. This is commonly known as redemptive violence. The sacrifice of one to save the rest. We see this ideology cleverly articulated and executed by the high priest Caiaphas, who presided over the religious trial of Jesus. Conspiring to murder Jesus, he said to his fellow religious leaders, it's profound what he says, you know nothing at all. In other words, what he's saying, there are ways and means to get to point B from point A without a straight line. You don't have to go through a straight line. There are other ways to get there. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. I read this following paraphrase somewhere else in another kind of translation paraphrase. And I thought the following paraphrase is more colorful and expressive, so I'll read it out to you. Caiaphas says, you are all dumb-witted idiots. Can't you see that if we apply the scapegoat principle, we can get rid of this man called Jesus, and everyone will thank us because they will think that we have done it for their good. This is Philip's translation. Okay, so... Um, you don't want me to read it again, do you? Um, you're all dumb-witted idiots. Can't you see that if we apply the scapegoat principle, we can get rid of this man called Jesus and everyone will thank us because they will think that we have done it for their good. So the fact, as we looked before, there are three things that is at stake here. The fact, this man works many miracles. Second, he claims to be the Messiah. Third, everyone believes in him. These are facts. Now, these facts causes problems, three problems. 
The problems these facts cause are actions of Jesus will upset the Romans. Second, the religious leaders will lose their position in the community. Third, the Romans will take away the little freedom the Jews had. These were the consequences. So what is Caiaphas' solution? The solution is what I have already read. He says, it is better for you that one man die for the nation and not the whole nation perish. This is, by the way, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 50. Being a religious leader and teacher, he knew about the scapegoating tradition. The scapegoating uh, principle is described in detail in Leviticus, chapter 16, 1 to 32, if you are interested in reading it. The, that's where we see the first introduction of scapegoating. So this opportunist presented Jesus as a perfect fit for the special category of the innocent victim, the scapegoat. It is good for a good man to die for the salvation of the entire nation. It's very interesting. Caiaphas never said that Jesus was bad. Have you noticed that? He never, ever, ever said, this man is rotten, we got to get rid of him. He never mentions blasphemy. He never mentions causing problems. He says it is better than one man die for the whole nation. That's all it is. Very powerful. Sounds so wonderful. Such altruism. Such caring. Such concern for the nation and the people. The scapegoat. Well, on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats. This is what you will find this in um, Leviticus chapter 16. And present them before the Lord. Then he would cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. The goat upon which the Lord's Lord fell was offered as a sin offering. The high priest would then lay both hands on the other goat's head and confess over it the wickedness of the nation. In so doing, he symbolically transferred the sins of the nation onto this goat. And the community, uh, even the entire nation's sin would be transferred to the goat. Then a man appointed for the task would lead this goat away into the wilderness and let it go. So the first goat was sacrificed, the second goat was led away and let loose. The goat shall bear all their iniquities, Leviticus 16.22, upon him to a solitary land, and he shall let the goat go in the wilderness. The fate of the goat after that, we don't know. It is uncertain. We don't know what happens to this goat. Strange and bizarre it may have been, but not without meaning for those who participated in it. The literal English translation of the Hebrew word scapegoat would be something along the lines of the going away goat. That's all it just means. Scapegoat means the going away goat or the disappearing goat. 
The most significant aspect of the ceremony was that the scapegoat did not share or own the blame that was placed upon it. Everybody knew that the goat had nothing to do with any of the things that happened. It was people's sin. It was their confession onto the goat. The goat is symbolically carrying it away. The goat is not even assumed to have done anything wrong. It is just a carrier of the people's It just carried the blame of others. The scapegoat was not deemed guilty, deserving punishment. Those who participated in this ritual believed that they were guilty and that the goat was innocent. It was a means, a carrier. The ritual in its original form helped the nation to own their wrongdoing and accept the consequences. In other words, the guilty party was the people. And they come to the high priest, and the high priest confesses the sins of the nation onto the goat. With the release of the scapegoat from the wilderness, the community was delivered from the fear of divine punishment and the burden of personal and national gift. As the scapegoat was set free in the desert to wander at will, the nation of Israel was set free from the contaminations and defilements during their wilderness wanderings. The ceremony of the scapegoat had four powerful symbolisms. The first is the community in participating in the scapegoat ritual accepted their sin and guilt or at least was aware that the ceremony had something to do with their sins and guilt. So that's one of the first things. So they knew it was about them. Second, they acknowledged the need for a sin bearer, somebody to carry their sins away, far away from them. Third, the ceremony gave the participants the assurance of divine forgiveness. So when you have participated in the ceremony, you knew that God has forgiven you. Finally, and fourthly, and more importantly, those who participated in the ceremony knew and acknowledged that the goat was blameless. So these are the four things that we learn from it. First, the community accepted their sin. Second, they acknowledged the need for a sin bearer. We need someone to carry our sins. And third, it gave the assurance of divine forgiveness. And fourth, they knew that the goat was innocent. It had nothing to do with what was happening. The scapegoat was a means of grace and salvation. It gave those who participated in the ritual the assurance that they did not need to fear God's wrath or live with the burden of their guilt as long as they repeated the ritual every year. The true meaning of the ritual was explicit in its very enactment. The God does not save, but the nation's confession of their personal and collective sins produced forgiveness of sins. It's the confession that produced forgiveness, not the goat. The role of the goat in the ceremony was symbolic, while the confession of sins and repentance of the people were real. Now, can you see why I had to find another word for scapegoat? That is, a scapegoat. The goat that gets blamed.
You see? The people escapes and the goats get the blame. Whereas in the original sense, the goat had no blame. And it was never murdered, punished or anything. It was led away to wander at will. Now, this is where Caiaphas's deception comes into the picture. Caiaphas takes this idea and he exorcises or takes away the basic principle of the confession of sin and turns the scapegoat into a true scapegoat. Why? Because that is the only way he can accomplish what he wanted to. So two things. He takes a symbolism that is extremely loaded with moral and uses it for an immoral act, that is, to murder Jesus. What was given by God for human forgiveness, repentance and reformation is used to exploit the very evil nature that is hidden in us, the murder, which is what we saw in Genesis chapter 4. Cain became jealous after the sacrifice or the offering, not sacrifice, the offering. He calls his brother, let's go for a walk. He murders him. And we see Jesus saying, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. So what was intended for our liberation is exploited by Caiaphas to demonstrate the worst that human beings can do. So a moralistic rationale for an immoral act. Secondly, the deception here is a philanthropic pretext. In other words, Caiaphas is extremely philanthropic here. He says, this is good for the nation. We are doing it for the good of the nation. But why was he doing it? For his own personal gain, political and his survival as a high priest. This is what is called deception. The intention behind the action. I have quoted before those words of T.S. Eliot from Murder in the Cathedral. This last temptation is the greatest reason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. What is the reason? Why are you doing what you are doing? We are doing a favor to everybody else, says Caiaphas. We are serving God by saving our nation says Caiaphas. I'm assuming that you understood all that. But Caiaphas has a dilemma. And let me explain what that dilemma is. What motivated Caiaphas to identify Jesus as the scapegoat of God was political opportunism, not his religious beliefs. Jesus' popularity threatened his survival. Jesus' teachings challenged his authority. He knew that he couldn't accuse Jesus of wrongdoing. He had done no wrong that warranted condemnation or expulsion. Besides, nobody will believe him. Nobody will follow him. Nobody will take up his side. If he unilaterally acted against the miracle-working popular prophet, 
the crowds would turn against him. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. If he can be made into the scapegoat, the goat that does nothing wrong, ah, sacrifice. See, this is a problem. This goat cannot be sacrificed. The scapegoat cannot be sacrificed, but Caiaphas wants the scapegoat to be sacrificed. This is the problem. Economical, religious and convenient. The crowds would be happy with that. But how do I get him, says Caiaphas, to have him sacrificed? Two problems stood in the way of Caiaphas. First, to put a person to death, he needed the sanction of the Roman governor. The Romans did not subscribe to the Jewish innocent scapegoat victimization theory. They were not strangers to victimizing or scapegoating or escapegoating, but not in the religious sense. They were, in their theory, their scapegoats were accused of wrongdoing and deserving of punishment. Caiaphas needed to make Jesus a criminal first before he presented him to the Roman authorities. This is where deception begins to take its true shape. So that's the first problem. How do I get Jesus murdered? How do I get the Romans to do it? Second, as we have observed earlier, in the biblical practice, the scapegoat was never put to death. Though it carried the sins of the nation, it was free to roam. Caiaphas could not afford that. If he promoted Jesus as a sinless sin bearer, it would become counterproductive. Jesus must die. He wanted Jesus to die. There was no confusion about that, but he did not want him to die as one who carried the sins of the people, but as one who was rejected by God. Somehow he has to create the scenario that God has rejected Jesus. It was important for Caiaphas that the public saw Jesus as one who was rejected by God, preferably for blasphemy. Jesus must die as a black sheep, not as the Lamb of God. This was so important. See, if he died as the Lamb of God, he becomes a hero. No, he must die as a black sheep, one who was rejected by God. He knew that unless he could manipulate the crowds, creating both a religious and political crisis, he could not get rid of Jesus. He introduced a new paradigm into the situation. I like to call it, they are not my words, but I like to call it unanimity minus one. In other words, everyone against one. It's a powerful, powerful theory. Believe me, this is being practiced in many countries today by cunning political leaders. And I'm not going to mention any country by name. Unanimity minus one. Scapegoating. Caiaphas resolved to exploit and put in motion the destructive power of irrational crowd behavior. All you have to do is make the crowd irrational. The more irrational they are, the more unified they become. It is also known as shared ignorance. In fact, ignorance 
is shared more often than knowledge. As we know, fake news, fake news in this day of social media and mass media. Caiaphas made sure that there was not a single dissenting voice at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. It was very important because it is unanimity minus one. And the minus one has no voice. The minus one's voice, nobody wants to hear. This is ultimate victimization. The victim is silenced 100%. The rejection was complete and total. The religious leaders were against him. The crowd unanimously rejected him. The Roman authority condemned him. His own disciples abandoned him. Though those who were involved in it were completely unaware of the process, they were unanimous in their commitment to it. And that's what ignorance does. You are so The more ignorant you are, the more committed you become to the cause. And you know it is happening all around us. The more ignorant we are about something, the more committed we are to that. Though those who were involved in it were completely unaware of its process, they were unanimous in their commitment to it. This particular mechanism is based not on moral or ethical enlightenment, but on ignorance and irrationality. The more ignorant they were, the more united they became in their hatred of the victim. It is possible that the Apostle Paul must have had this particular irrational crowd behavior in mind when he said, none of the rulers of the world understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. He attributed the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders as an act of ignorance rather than wisdom or knowledge. A crowd unified in ignorance is volatile, dangerous and easily manipulated. The more ignorant they are, the more easily manipulated they become. Caiaphas knew the strange crowd mentality and tapped into its unlimited and uncontrolled energy, channeling it in one direction against one man, Jesus Christ, whom he hated the most. Pilate, the powerful governor of the ruthless Roman Empire, stood helpless. He tried his best to appease the crowd. Though unconvinced, finally he relented and joined with the crowd. Against the advice of his wife and his own better judgment, he handed over Jesus to be crucified. The disciples were no different. They also felt the same weight of the crowd pressure. When a servant girl asked Peter, are you not a Galilean? He says, me? I don't even look like one. Do I talk like one? I am not one. It was so easy. This is the pressure of the crowd behavior. Because you cannot be outside the crowd. You have to join in. Romba, unanimity minus one. And that is so powerful in the parable of the lost sheep. It was 100 minus one. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. It is 99 plus one. 
And that is the power of it. We must understand the sociology of that parable. It is not 100 minus 1. It is 99 plus 1. But at the death of Jesus, at the crucifixion of Jesus, it was 100 minus 1. This is what Caiaphas wanted. And that is what deception is all about. The disciples were no different. They also felt the same weight of the crowd pressure. One by one, they rejected, abused, and abandoned Jesus against their will. And that's the thing. It is against their will that they have done it. Can you imagine the pressure, the dynamic that was released by Caiaphas? So powerful. Even though only for a brief irrational moment, the power of mimetic contagion or imitating another person overpowered their love for their master and they scandalized him. The blameless son of God was presented before the crowd as the consummate imposter and blasphemer. The one who carried God's stamp of approval was caricatured as one who was rejected by God. The Lamb of God became a black sheep, the escape goat. Not the scapegoat, the escape goat. When the public rejected Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, Caiaphas won the first part of the battle. The fickle crowd was easily manipulated. The purging ceremony was initiated. A crime of personal hatred received religious sanction. It is better for one man to die for the nation. Without the slightest guilt, he could get rid of the beloved Son of God with a guilty verdict of blasphemy against God. The Son of God now is against God. When Pilate, the Roman governor, washed his hands in public and handed over Jesus to be crucified, the legal hurdle was crossed. Seeing Jesus hanging on the cross gave the religious leaders the confidence that their plan had finally worked. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. They scorned. They proved that Jesus was not the Messiah, the chosen one of God. He was not even a scapegoat, the one who carried the sins of the nation, or a sacrificial lamb that died on their behalf. He was reduced to a common blasphemer, rejected by God, a political liability, discarded by the Jewish nation, a seditionary condemned by Rome. He was not a prophet who declared the message of God. Instead, he proved to be a cheat, a liar, and at best, a false prophet. Can you see how deception work? Caiaphas, as I said at the beginning, if Satan is the father of lies, Caiaphas is the high priest of deception. Beautiful, fantastic. I mean, the, the, the cleverness of it is unbelievable. The sociology at work must be studied. He was not a prophet who declared the message of God. Instead, he proved to be a cheat, a liar, and at best a false prophet. He died for his sins alone and not for anybody else's sins. 
Remember when he started, it was, it is better for one man to die for the nation. Now when actually Jesus dies, he dies for his sins alone. He is paying a price for his blasphemy because he made himself to be God. That was the accusation. He died for his sins alone, the sin of misrepresenting God and misleading God's people. Definitely, he did not die for the sins of his people. What a, an amazing turnaround. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, Caiaphas presents a beautiful solution. The solution is very simple. One man died for the nation. But when he finally gets what he wanted, he makes sure that this man doesn't die for anyone other than his own wrongdoing, his own sins. He is paying a price for nobody else except himself. The ultimate deception. I call it the masking of violence. That's the ultimate deception. Nobody even knew that a violence was committed. Caiaphas completely and successfully masked the violence against Jesus. The masking was so perfect, it appeared to all that there was no violence in it at all. Just justice, the justice of God being done. It is God now working, not Caiaphas, not Pilate, not Rome. It is God at work. God has rejected him. And that's what the crowd said at the cross. Let us see if Elijah might come and do something for him. And another said, he said he was a son of God. That he came to save, but he can't even save himself. And he said, if you are the son of God, save yourself and save us also. Powerful. The masking was so perfect, it appeared to all that there was no violence in it at all. Just justice. The justice of God. Those who put him to death were serving God by executing his purposes. You see, it's fantastic. Now, the people who killed Jesus are the true servants of God. They are the ones who are carrying out God's will and purpose. They saved their community from an imposter who claimed to be the son of God. This was a true purging ceremony. So it was not a good man dying for the nation. It is a bad man being getted off so that the community can live in peace. For Caiaphas and his fellow collaborators, this was the greatest of all victories. We saw how Joshua did this with Achan and his family last year in our meditation. He organized the crowds to stone Achan and confess his sin and then change the law the following day because it was important to unify people. We saw how the crowd wanted to do this to the woman caught in adultery. In the case of Achan, there was no one to stand with him. It was a perfect unanimity minus one. But in the case of the woman caught in adultery, aha, Jesus stood with her. And that's a difference. And that's a difference. In the case of Achan, there was no one to stand with him. 
in the case of the woman caught in adultery, the Son of Man, the Son of God, stood by her. At the end of Achan's story, all that remained was a heap of stones. And we read further in that passage that that heap of stone still remains to this day. Whoever wrote that bit says it still remains. In other words, that's all there was, a heap of stone. There's no Achan, just a heap of stone. The victim was made invisible. Nobody wants to hear his story. Nobody asked him, how did this happen? Why did you do this? Did anybody else go do this with you? Are there other collaborators? Do you know anybody else who has done it? No, we just got one man. That's all we need. Unanimity minus one. At the end of Aiken's story, all that remained was a heap of stones. The victim was not visible. He and his family were made invisible by the violence committed against them. In the case of the woman caught in adultery, the victim was separated from the stones. It's very important to understand. The stones were there because we read that they left the stones there and they left. They left, but the stones were left there. It's just that they did not heap it over the woman. That's the difference. Why? Because Jesus stood with her. The woman caught in the adultery, the victim was separated from the stones. She went back to her village. From exactly where she came from, she goes back. But this time, she goes back a changed person because she heard Jesus say, if they didn't condemn you, I'm also not going to condemn you. Go and leave your way of sin. The rejection of Jesus was complete and total. There was not a single descending voice at the crucifixion of Jesus. It was a perfect example for unanimity minus one. His friends and foes united in rejecting him. Caiaphas' deception did not remain hidden for long. First, the victim's voice was heard from the very cross, when he was allowed to yell out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe that we must allow and we must make it possible for victims to speak. Their voice must be heard and they must be heard and understood and listened to. Second, on the third day after the crucifixion, the victim came back to life and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Giving us hope, purpose and meaning in life because God does not leave us under a heap of stones. What remains under a heap of stones is injustice and violence. But in resurrection, God brings back to life and gives meaning to all that injustice that was done. As we saw in a few studies in the Joseph story, you intended to harm me. You wanted to bury me. You wanted to silence me. 
by dipping my coat in animal blood. You thought that was it. You thought that was evidence. No. God had a purpose. You sold me, but God sent me. We saw that. And this is the truth. Next week, we want to look at what was it that the crowd did not know. Father, forgive them, Jesus prayed, for they do not know what they are doing. What is it that they did not know?